What do you consider to be unusual? Oh, I don't know. What do you recommend? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 11th installment of the CuffCast, a resource of all films, esoteric, strange, bizarre, creepy, kooky, spooky, ooky, sometimes sexy. I am your co-host Cameron McGowan, and with me is fellow co-host Rhett Miller. And on today's episode, we bring you the lady who is responsible for the Calgary Underground Film Festival, Miss Brenda Lieberman. Stick around. Hey, Red, I lied last time uh, we did our cuff cast. I said I was going to bring a recorder to the festival, interview some of the guests we had in town. Well, th that did not happen. I'm sure you got some stories, though. Oh, man, I got some stories. So it's been a few months since we held the 19th Calgary Underground Film Festival back in April. Great show. First time back in person, so we were busy as hell. And it was nice, man. We had a lot of cool guests. Uh, most notably, James Shapiro of XYZ Films, one of the founders of Draft House Films, was here dropping some knowledge bombs. Yeah, I was in for his chat. The future of the industry looks quite uh, up in turmoil almost. We don't know what's, what's, what's happening. You know? Yeah, yeah. James talked a lot about how streaming is a bit of a parasite on the film industry right now. But, uh, you know, as much as people say cinema's dead, uh, I've been hearing that for 20 years. Cinema can't die. Because there's always going to be people making movies with on zero dollars. There always have been. It's like music. Music can never die. It's just might be harder to find the good shit. <laughs> well, and when last time when film was an underdog, like you know, late '60s when the studio system was dying, like that's when the best films were coming out. So right now, like Shapiro was talking about how TV is like overtaking films in terms of like what people are watching on streaming platforms. So now, you know, film's a bit of an underdog. We've got a bit of a chip in our shoulder making films. So maybe that's, there's a, the new renaissance, the American New Wave 2.0. Yeah, you know, the odds have always been stacked against filmmakers, in my opinion, unless you're a child of nepotism. The odds are always stacked against you. So I kind of like when people are saying film's dead because it just means the rest of us who don't believe film's dead we're going to stick around and there may be more opportunities in the future for those who have not accepted this demise. And just to be clear, he didn't say film is dead at all, but just that, you know, that TV has actually r r risen up uh, in competition against it. Yeah. Who else did we have? Riley Stearns was down. He did The Art of Self-Defense uh, in his film this year was called Duel with Karen Gillan. That was the opening night film. Big reactions uh, there. I was yeah, there for that huge too. screening, huge screening. Yeah, Rhett was actually doing some videography work at the festival this year. <laughs> yeah. What was it like to be on the other side, seeing how the sausage was made, getting to see the audience and not being the audience this time? Yeah, it was kind of fun that way. Yeah, because you just see the different types of people there. Because obviously, I was filming the audience uh, quite often, or a lot of it. So looking at reactions, and so I was more attuned to when the audience was, you know, cheering or clapping and having a good time or even at the, you know, the, the Saturday morning cartoons, you know, the, the type of people that are going there and all the <laughs> different cereal. I got to see all the behind the scenes stuff. It was really fun. Revealing. Well, thanks to everybody who made it out in person this year. It was really great to be back at the Globe Cinema. We did a portion of the festival online still at the end of the week. And some folks only joined us for that. Some folks did both. But hey, we were out there celebrating cool movies. 
What else has happened since then? There was another cool movie that you celebrated that I was oh, also in attendance, but not to film, because I love that movie, and I love the man who is showing that movie, so Cam. What did we do? We had Joe Bob Briggs in town Hell to present yeah. Jim Wynorski's Chopping Mall. Man, this was a dream come true. Dan Doherty over at Horicon, he was bringing Joe Bob down to sign some stuff at the Horicon. And we're like, man, you can't have Joe Bob Briggs in town and not present a movie. And so, bless Brenda's heart, she uh, was was with me when I was like, we got to do this. Talk to Dan, see if we can partner on this. It was a brilliant, brilliant turnout. Thanks to everybody who made it. The crowd's energy was just amazing. And getting to hear Joe Bob's tales of chopping mall was just in person. It was just beautiful, man. Like, this guy has clearly met and partied this li through this life, you know? This guy is a master of 80s movies. Joe Bob Briggs knows all the people, knows all the stories, and can tell it to you in a comedic and informative way. So those of you who don't know who Joe Bob Briggs is, you gotta check out The Last Drive-In on Shudder. We've mentioned it a few times, but Joe Bob's essentially like Elvira with a cowboy hat and a smaller chest. He comments <laughs> on uh, niche horror films. He's often a pretty tall guy though. He's, yeah, he's very he's, tall. He does have a big chest in that way too. Uh, comments on niche horror films, uh, and man, is an encyclopedia of that type of cinema. And it was just an absolute honor and privilege to get to bring him to our city and uh, he yeah. did a Q&A after, and uh, he was a very jovial host. And, yeah. Uh, seemed to like Calgary as well. We were talking about Nightbreed, and it was, it was fun. Yeah, man. That was awesome. We've been doing a lot of things. We haven't been podcasting, but hey, we've been living our lives. We've been enjoying the summer, and now we're back. And it is our absolute honor to have in the studio Miss Brenda Lieberman. <laughs> With us in studio, you know her, you love her, lead programmer of the Calgary International Film Festival, founder, festival director, lead programmer of the Calgary Underground Film Festival, coolest chick in town, Brenda Lieberman. Uh, Brenda, you've been on as a co-host, but we wanted to have you on as a guest because you're pretty much a superstar in this city and we really want to bring attention to that because how long has Cuff been going now? We're at 19 years, approaching 20. Yep. So you founded Cuff 20 years ago. How long ago did you work, start working for the Calgary International Film Festival? I mean, I guess I was officially on staff since 2007. Nice. So, so long time. But Brenda didn't start wanting to program movies. You started on film sets. Is that, is that correct? I did want to program. I just didn't know how to get there. It was like, uh -huh. it was like that path that you just don't really know what to be on. Right. If that makes sense. And also there was no money in it. Right, like, still isn't. There's, yeah, so, like, when I first started working for SIF as a volunteer before I got staff in 2007, I wasn't getting paid, and when I started Cuff, there was no money, so I was working in film as both a combination of, like, do I want to work on production or do I want to work in festivals? And then at least the production work was paying me and allowing me to be able to run Cuff at the same time. Oh, and what did you go to school for, Brenda? Well, I originally took interior design, which is where I actually first learned about the set deck department because a girl that I went to school with was big into the art department. So there was a little bit of a, an idea coming from there. But then I went back and took arts and cultural management. Oh, cool. So this kind of hybrid began in my brain of like, 
I guess, the film management side of things and then film production and potentially art department, and I just didn't know what I was doing. So And then event management comes in, and the, the trifecta forms a film festival director. Yeah, well, definitely got to a point in film production, too, where I had to pick and choose because it was, like, getting busier in production, busier with the film festivals, and then I just had to choose. And you were working on in a few different roles, right? I, I remember one of my first gigs that I worked on, you were in locations with me, yeah. and you were driving, like, this giant <laughs> semi-truck, and I was like, how can Brenda do this? She's amazing. Yeah. yeah, I did. I tried. I started in locations, and then I was really only doing DGC stuff, so... Like peeing, locations, a bit of office, which made me cry. I never did that again after that day. It was horrible. <laughs> um, maybe different now, but at the time it was all photocopiers, and I thought I was going to want to kill the photocopier. <sighs> yeah, I did some, like, I even did some extra work. I tried paint. I tried uh, daily labor. I tried a day in the construction of Hartman, <laughs> which was, like, totally not for me. Yeah. That's amazing. And then I did have to fit all these like ridiculous vehicles in locations, like oh yeah, big yeah. like huge massive trucks that I couldn't barely fit in. But I did it. But you were willing to do anything for your passion of film. The problem with the original landscape of locations when I was doing it, which is where I met a ton of people, is like there was no room for you to apply your skill and knowledge you had to another area within the department like you it was so slow moving like I was never going to get out of location PA to be like a location manager and negotiating contracts and you know deals for the which would have been rad I could have totally done that not not going to happen couldn't get into ADing would have been great wasn't going to happen so I was like this like sucks to keep doing like endless like location PA so then I switched to art department and uh yeah it was you know when it's not busy enough and there's a lot of people in each area the movement to go up is harder so what movie gave you the movie bug I mean one of my favorite movies of figuring out like directors that I liked was probably Shallow Grave way back when but what actually ended up happening, like, I did, like, a non-credit film course at, you know, U of A just to, like, kill some time when I was trying to figure out what to do. And I met Dave Alexander, actually, who way back when was editor at Rue Morgue and whatnot. He's originally from Edmonton and... Has a great new book called Development Hell about movies that never got made from famous folks. Check it out. So I think, like, me that had a little bit of, you know, hey, you know, I'd like to meet some people into the film... Uh, but when I graduated from arts management, a girl in my class was from Toronto and her boyfriend at the time worked in the film industry and had, uh, was a film critic and had a TIFF pass and he invited me to come stay with them during TIFF. So I got a pass. I, it was kind of complicated, but I was working at CSIF that year as a trial new position for programming coordinator. And uh, so I got this pass to TIFF. And I, when I went to TIFF that year, I was, like, super blown away. That's where it all started. I went to TIFF as a guest, was blown away by all the Discovery filmmakers, first-timers, and was like, holy shit, like, do we have this in Calgary? Like, I didn't even know. Because you were seeing some gnarly movies. I, I remember seeing gnarly you, the movies. Acid House was it, one you it mentioned. Was, it was 99, and it was Oh, like, that was the, 99. What a year for movies, man. That so was one of the best years. There were so many good movies in 99, and I was blown away by the film festival. 
and came back and I was like, there wasn't, that's when I was like searching, you know, the internet, (laughs) Calgary Film Festival and like SIF hadn't started yet. SIF hadn't even started yet. No, like they were just, they had their team and they were planning to do their first festival, but they hadn't. How did you get some friends together to go, we should start bringing cool gnarly movies here to, to, which eventually became Cuff, I'm assuming. Well, yeah, I mean, it kind of started more with me trying to convince the, the two guys who wanted to start SIF to bring me on to help, right? So I met with them. I, I remember there was like the second cup on 14th Street, and I was like, who are you guys? Like, I want to help you start the festival. And they were like, well, we kind of got our thing going already. Like, we're good. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, let me help. And they are like, no, we're good. And I was like, geez, okay. So then I met Pete Harris at the plaza at the time, and I was like, dude, let me help you program. Like, I just saw these great movies at TIFF, like... Let's do this. And, you know, Pete was really good about recommendations and stuff, but, like, he also had his hands tied. He was like, I'm a one-man show. I can't. I don't have room to bring anyone. So I just bugged everyone and bugged everyone, and no one had, like, a spot. So I was like, all right, team. We, you know, I'd been hanging out at at Media and CSAF and was like, I think that's when we started to pool together the staff who worked at the co-ops, like, Brian Batista, Carrie McQueen, um, Julia, like it was all this team of people that were in the film industry from the local indie scene, but didn't have that exhibition background. And we were just like, let's do it. And do you remember that first cuff? Well, the very first cuff, we were doing it out of a bar. So we were converting bar into cinema and we had everything figured out, except it was a brand new bar. And it turns out that they didn't have the proper licensing in place for the liquor. This is like all a little bit hard for me to remember. But this at this time, we had the locations department, again, like was awesome because I'd worked in it. Anything we needed for setup, like tents, chairs, anything that they could give and lend, they would lend. We had a board member who had a van. And we were like, you're, you're hired for free. This is perfect. And we, you know, we had the like popcorn machine from CSIF. Which they still have. And so, yeah, we converted this. Okay, the bar was, more recently was the Hi-Fi, but it was before it was Hi-Fi. It had a different name. For I don't even know if it's Hi-Fi it was called. No, they're gone. It was called The Venue, I think. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, yeah, it opened and we set off with our first screening and it went really great. And then um, somebody must have had a problem with the people who were opening the bar and called it in as a not approved like liquor license opening, oh, which shoot. we didn't know. So, so AGLC, AGLC showed up partway through the first night and shut the whole event down. In the middle of the screening. Yeah. For so of the first we were, we were tr- Yeah, we were trying to figure out where to go. <laughs> we were like, oh my God, like we'd been advertising this and promoting this. And how many and people were there? Probably... 70 or so people. I just remember us panicking and trying to figure out what to do and having to like move everything. So, so where'd you move we to? Moved to M Media's, like just on the fly. Like, yeah, like, everyone come follow me. Yeah, like, like a field trip with kids. You have a rope and you walk down the street. Yeah, yeah. festivals at M Media now. Yeah, it was so. First year was rough to say the least, yeah. but growing pains and lessons were learned. Yeah, and the second year is when Rhett and I went because we saw the 
a local organization was showing shivers on 16 millimeter. Or 35, yeah. Or whatever. It was yeah, on, on, was it on film. film. Yeah, yeah. And that uh, a scholar was going to be talking about Canadian horror cinema. We're like, what the fuck? This it never happens Calum, in Calgary. It was Calum, yeah. Which I, I knew him through some message boards, like, you know, talking about Canadian film or whatever. So you see like the, that new book that had just come yeah, out, The History. Or the, yeah, exactly. Which right. was <laughs> the title of Shivers as well. Yeah. So, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I just remember our minds were blown. It was like nothing cool happens in Calgary. And yeah. now Cronenberg's debut feature film showing on a film print. And not only that, Calum showed the corpse eaters at the which, at yeah, Broken which City like afterwards, a, which was impossible to still, find. It still is. It still hasn't even been released on DVD. Any disc format, like the VHS is like the highest it's gone. So people still request that movie I see on Vinegar Syndrome forums and stuff like the corpse eaters, right? But yeah. you guys brought it. Yeah, it was the coolest. It was like you spend your life growing up in the suburbs thinking that this town's a piece of shit. And then you see, holy crap. These cool folks are showing shivers on film, and I believe, was that at the Globe or the Plaza? The first screenings in cinema when we, was Uptown oh, okay. and Plaza. Uptown. And so I actually think at that time, we were, when we did a screening, it was um, on film, it was at Uptown and at, and then Bar for the other stuff. Yeah, I remember um, we were in Broken City for the other stuff, and it was like a projector, yeah. just you know, in the middle of the bar. Yeah, which had a vibe to it, right? But then, so, did you guys move we, exclusively to the theater? Like, like yeah, we theater? so we did occasional screenings at Uptown when needed, and then we eventually moved um, the whole festival to the Plaza when we couldn't do bar and theater both. Right. Um, that was mostly because we just kind of we outgrew it. Like we did open one year. A couple of years in with wrist cutters, it was so packed. That screening. I remember that screening. It was so packed. That was at Hi Fi, wasn't it? Wrist that cutters? was at, yeah, that was at, at Hi Fi. And so was Tommy Chong's documentary, AKA Tommy Chong. And he came. And both those movies, like, we were busting. Yeah. Too big for your britches. Yeah. So we knew it wasn't going to be able to like stay where we were and sight lines like we were having trouble showing subtitled films and people like even at broken city where i just remember everyone kind of looking around pillars and we were like yes yes this is so hard and being like noise police like oh right you know just making sure nobody talked and then like also reality setting up and tearing down chairs Every night is like well, I remember the, draining uh, on it. We team. would ha- the audience members would help. I remember yeah. helping tear down a couple times before I'd even joined the team. But yeah, it, it kind of so was the Wild West, you know. And even Stiff, like when it first started too. I remember the first screening I saw was in the Curry Barracks in some little room. Like it wasn't even a theater room. It was just like uh, it was a documentary on mullets. I remember, and they were just projecting it on a wall in a, in a little room in in the. That was Curry probably barracks. somewhere at CSIF. The barracks. Oh, were they there at the barracks? Yeah, yeah CSIF oh, was okay. at the barracks. There you go, I didn't even remember. Yeah. So, yeah. So these then, two festivals are growing simultaneously. Yeah, like, SIF was only a couple years older, and the original founder of SIF, one of those two guys, like, that I'd originally met, he did found Cuff with me. Oh, yeah. So there is, like, a connection between the two, too. It was just... So you, you came to town, you said, hey, SIF, let me help you. They said, we're too busy. You said, I'm going to start my own festival. You start your own festival, and then SIF goes, hey, wait. You're you're even more awesome than we originally thought. When did they invite you over to SIF, or how did that how did that uh, joining begin? I was first kind of volunteering a bit with print traffic with Pete, um, and some shorts programming. 
Um, but that was with, um, so they had a few different EDs. So when David Morelli was ED, that was kind of all for my involvement. And then when Jacqueline took over as ED there, uh, yeah, I don't know. She'd known about me and she decided to bring me on as a late shows programmer. Nice. And I think that was probably because now by that point, Cuff had been going for a couple of years and yeah, so that's where it started is like late shows only at SIF, also doing Cuff, also working on film sets. <laughs> <laughs> Which I have to thank you for because you might have been one year, maybe your first year, second year, you would program my short heroin cake, which I made at Sate, and I just submitted on a whim. I didn't even know how to submit. Like I just like brought like a, a DV cam tape or, or a beta cam tape or something, and uh, not thinking anything of it, and it made it into the festival thanks to you. And uh, Cam and all of us went to see it, to, you know, see our, one of our sh shorts kind of on the big screen. And yeah. it was like a huge deal. And it was a late night, midnight mm. screening or whatever it was. But still amazing to, to see your movie on the big screen. So yeah, totally. I owe you a lot of thanks, Brenda. <laughs> oh, yeah, <you're laughs> you introduced welcome. me to film festivals, both SIF and Cuff. And then uh, you program my first short as well. So, Brenda, what are some of the biggest trend sh shifts you've noticed in the last 20 years with film festivals? I don't know if it's a trend shift, but I just think that uh, everything's just moving way quicker. Like when we first were programming, it would, things were less seasonal. Like, I mean, Cuff always went at the opposite time of year as SIF, so there wouldn't be competition in that regard with films anyways. But I just remember, you know, obviously when you used to program before, you'd, films would be around for a lot longer. Yeah, yeah. And now, as we know, it's like, you just don't even know like two months ahead in the streaming age yeah because some some of these movies 20 years ago they would they might never even have found a home like some of these movies you've sh shown in the early years i bet aren't even on dvd or streaming services right now whereas everything now has a turnaround time of like three months from festival to streaming i just think like as programmers we're moving at a different pace to try and find content for the festivals so maybe that's the biggest thing, but... And do you have to compete with other festivals too with those dates, like with yeah. availability to get a film? Yeah, but I feel like some of the challenges right from the beginning are the same challenges they are now. Like you're always, and every single film festival, whether it's our festival or anyone we talk to in the industry, thinks we're all somewhat challenged or limited by whatever other festivals are bigger right around you. So, you know, we're, we're trying to, everyone's trying to, um, book these films premiere status becomes in question for a lot of titles the more we've grown and the more our reputation has grown the more premiere statuses we could get but even if we're not worried about premiere status which we aren't there's always going to be a bigger festival around you that is so you know even with cuff we have the odd film that is still trying to get into can which is after us, or certain major festival like Fantasia, which we have a good relationship with. So they let, you know, several of them go ahead of them for us. But I don't think it matters what time of year you are. Every film festival goes through those same challenges with another festival that we wouldn't even think of, right? All right, well, let, let's get into and help some of the local filmmakers that might be listening. What are some do's and do nots for short films, Brenda? Well, I mean, I definitely think a lot of that. I mean, we always discuss length. Runtime, yeah. Runtime. I think a lot of films are just too long. So Yeah. What's I, too long? What's like, too what's too the long? cutoff? 
you know, unless it's an amazing short or something, but like, are we talking like has to be under eight minutes, has to be under five or, you know, or I mean, aim for it. I mean, I would say between five and 12 minutes has lots of good sweet spots in there because really short ones, like in the five to eight go really nicely before features as nice pairings, or they can, you could fit several of them in a shorts package you know, up to 12, I think, also works well, depending. Like, so, you know, somebody has a tight, longer story. But once you get past that, and and even at that, there's, you know, still you get some 12-minute ones that are, the credits are too long or the film's too long. I would say uh, after that, probably a lot of films should have had maybe a better critique from somebody not connected with the production. <laughs> I don't know. Like, does that seem fair? There, it is fair. It there's, is fair. There's some amazing films we've shown that are longer. So don't well, I think it boils like down to the 18 and the 22. It boils down to how you use the time. Because I've seen three-hour movies, RRR, now on Netflix, that feel <laughs> like they're 20 minutes long. And I've seen 20-minute movies that feel like they're three hours long. And I think it just boils down to pacing and knowing what's essential to your vibes, to your energy. Yeah. Don't start your short film with a minute of credits, you know, a film by, and then you have like a long, so you know, get yeah, right to the meat. You know, short of... films are a different beast. Yeah, honestly, there used to be so many short films that would have opening credit sequences. Like, I, I've only been with Cuff 10 years, but I remember the first couple of years, there were short films that had opening credit sequences. Luckily, that has stopped. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they don't do that anymore. But uh, but some do's. What, what are some do's? What 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 helps a film stand out for you when you're programming? I don't know if I know a specific. I guess you could really tell in the opening scene, in the you know opening minute of a film, where the look and feel of a film is going to go often. Like if you're in, if you trust if, if, the filmmaker, if you feel like you're in yeah, good hands. Yeah, like you're gonna. If you could, if I could get like drawn in immediately from the opening, that I get more excited to see where the film's going to go. You know, thinking about that opening, you know, if you're a short few seconds or minute, if you're a feature is just so important. Because if you're a programmer watching hundreds and hundreds of films as a filmmaker, how are you going to get that attention from your audience or your the programmer? Yeah, yeah. you got to um, get it right away. You got to get it right away. I mean, I, I think whenever we teach those like classes or whatever, like there's things like making sure the filmmaker does their research and knows what the festival is. Uh, Make sure you're applying to the right festival. You know, applying to the right festival and what their style is or what genres that they like to show. I mean, we get so many filmmakers who notice that we don't show a certain style of film, but they think maybe their film is going to be different. So they really try and sell us on the fact that there's this different, like, I know you don't show many films between 30 and 60 minutes, but my film is 52 and it's like going to be perfect for you guys. And it's not anything we've ever shown before, but for some reason they think theirs is that film. And it's like, okay, like you could spend that money to submit, but I don't know if you're being as objective about your work as you should be when you're making that email pitch and spending that money. I feel like Filmmakers having a better reflection of what their work is. And I'd, uh, I'm not knocking filmmakers, but maybe some of them aren't talking to friends who they could be honest with them with about it. Yeah, it's true. It's true because while films, you know, are unique snowflakes, they are always of a type. And there's always a type of festival or a type of audience. But you do really need to 
target them, especially in the social media age where it's impossible to stand out amongst all the noise. So yeah. Cool. Well, Brenda, I'm going to leave us with one last question. You've been doing this for 20 years now. What keeps you programming? Why do you keep doing it? I mean, for me, I just like, I still loved ever since the beginning is introducing the audiences to new films. Like, I think the best part about it is discovering new filmmakers and some great content and then just being that connector between the audience and the work. So every year there's that new exciting batch of films and filmmakers and the audience excitement to see what we come up with. So it never feels like we've done it all or it's the same from one year to the next or festival to the next. So it's, I think it's just really exciting to be able to do it for our fans. Hell yeah, it is. And it's yeah. like in the, in the day of streaming, it's so hard to find uh, a third party to validate work that doesn't have a marketing budget, you know? And so the fact that you're out there shining a light on all these indie films that might not otherwise get seen, well, you're doing the Lord's work, Brenda. So thank you so much for everything that you do. Thanks for being a guest. Thanks. And we'll have you on as a co-host again when Cuff Doc season rolls around. Thank you. <laughs> I think Brenda might have been our first in-person guest. Am I wrong? Yeah, beyond interviewing Brenda and Brennan, you know, when you guys <laughs> when were they were co-hosting, co-hosting. <laughs> yeah, first actual interview. She was the first one in Rhett's F Shack. <laughs> the first one to see where the sausage is made. I did uh, knight her with a monster. It's a, a custom here. If you come into the Miller household, you you'll get a free monster on the house. Oh yes, free monster energy drink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you can go home with a ghoulie or a critter. <laughs> yeah. You can go home with I a little it. werewolf if you want. <laughs> but she chose the energy drink. Yeah, she chose the choice. energy drink. Green is her favorite if you're in, in the mood for buying Brenda a drink. <laughs> Green energy drink. Love you, Brenda. Thanks for taking the time. She's the best. Oh, Red, what, what is, is this? I heard a sound. I got some mail! Oh, and the box is huge because we haven't done it for months. Look at all these movies. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> it's our mail day segment where Rhett and I go through all of the loot we've accumulated. Goddamn, I've been buying too much shit. I know we say this every single time. This time we mean it. Yeah. There's been so many sales. There were two halfway to Black Friday sales. There's always a good Kino sale. Uh, there was a Criterion, Criterion sale in the yep, mixture too. Yep. I, my to-watch pile is ridiculous. But there's so much good shit, man. It's like, it's weird because on one hand, it feels like the death gasp of physical media because we're finally getting so many titles that never made their way to DVD. Some of them didn't even make their way to Blu-ray and we're getting 4K trues of them. Right, yeah, which I got one of them here to show. But Me yeah. too. Yeah. Is it the same one? No, no, I don't think so. All right, I'm going to start. All right. 4K of Dennis Hopper's Out of the Blue. From out of the blue comes the most controversial movie of the year. Dennis Hopper, the man who defined the 60s with Easy Rider, now takes on the 80s, out of the blue. My, my, hey, hey. She forgets how young she is, and she wants to grow up so fast. Why do you make things so difficult for yourself? It's my life, I can do what I want with it. Better to burn out. 
does punk rock mean to you? What are you here for? Money? Fame? What is it? Riches? The movie that's caused a sensation all across Europe is finally coming home. I'm waiting for the sale on this one. Cam's got the big bucks to splurge on this one. I have wanted to see this movie forever. So those of you who don't know, Dennis Hopper was hired as an actor for a family film called CB that was filming in Vancouver. And the producers did not like how this production was going. They did not have faith in the script or the direction. And so Dennis Hopper, who was hired as an actor, said, I'm going to rewrite this script over the weekend and tailor it to Linda Manns, the lead star of CB. And I'm going to write a completely different, gritty movie based off of the youth of today and based off of Linda Manns. And he gave it to the producers at the end of the weekend and said, how about we make this movie? And they went right into that. They went right into making Out of the Blue instead of CB. And this movie is fucked up, man. It's like a... It's almost like an early Larry Clark movie in a way. Mm -hmm. It's a hangout movie with a gritty kid who's in a real bad situation in her life but has charisma to spare. And it's got one of these bleak movie endings that you would only get in 1976, but this time in 1981. (laughs) A lot of the music from the film is from Neil Young, Out of the Blue, Into the Black is played quite a few times in the film. And Neil was a friend of Dennis, so said, of course you can use these songs. I know you don't have the money, but this movie sounds dope. And this movie is dope as fuck. However, I had never seen Out of the Blue until this past week when this came in the mail, and I adore this movie. I feel that Dennis Hopper was extremely underrated as a director. We all know he directed Easy Rider and changed the industry as we know it. After that, he directed the last movie and pretty much bankrupt his that studio. The producers, no, nobody went to go see the last movie, and it was, I think it was over a decade before he got to follow up the last movie with Out of the Blue. That's not to say the last movie is a bad movie. I think it's a masterpiece, but it was definitely far too experimental for the time. Out of the Blue, now available from Seven Films. <laughs> I got another Canadian film, filmed in Canada, but this one actually is more Canadian than uh, than Out of the Blue, and it's uh, Jacques Godboots. I probably messed up his name there. The Mob. that uh, works with Vinegar Syndrome, Canadian International Pictures, which I've been super excited about. I, Cam and I always talk about how there's not enough Canadian representation in cinema, certainly in like the boutique labels. So what better than to have its own boutique label as CIP or Canadian International Pictures. And The Mob, this one's pretty special. It's a, it's a really gritty sort of neo-noir, more like a crime sort of thriller, as was kind of in vogue in the early 70s. But... Uh, yeah, this one is lean and mean. I had not seen any films from this director. I know a lot about Canadian cinema, like the English speaking, but of course the Quebec cinema is probably the one that's been the most prolific and probably had the most uh, interesting sort of films in there because you know they had an industry to support them. And in English speaking Canada, we just had Hollywood to compete with, so it was always like, uh, you know, good work there, nice job on going down the road, but we'll keep, you know making American movies and you'll watch them because they're in English. So Quebec got to carve their own niche, right? And the mob definitely has its own sort of appeal to it. Uh, It's like really low budget, but like 
efficient. Like every shot has efficiency to it. The main character is what really appealed to me too because he's like a very flawed character. He's not just like your typical. He's not really likable at all, but very charming at the same time. So you're not really sure like how to feel about this guy, but basically he gets hired to kill someone over the border in New York City. He's told not to take the job from a big sort of mobster in Montreal. It takes a job anyway to get a quick, quick few bucks and then they want to take him out. But his way to stop them from silencing him is he calls a radio station and then he's voluntarily giving information about the whole gangster scene in Quebec or whatever on this radio station. And they're trying to find him by listening to the background elements of where he is, like when he's at a payphone trying to tell the stories. But it's got this ticking time bomb of you just waiting until he gets found or what he's going to do at the end. And much like Out of the Blue, it sounds like the ending is super bleak and it's like a one shot ending sort of like it's going and you think you know how it's going to go and then one shot boom it's like this gut punch of an ending and then it just cuts to black and mm. like, damn mm -mm. and it's only like you know 85 minutes it's lean and mean great movie and i wanted to add as someone who's not super familiar with quebecois cinema that uh, this release has maybe one of my favorite extras and it's a trailer reel of 40 minutes of trailers for Quebec crime films from the 60s and 70s. And from that list, I was able to find a whole bunch of really interesting movies that I'm looking forward to checking out. And I was able to find a bunch on iTunes of all places as well for $2.99 each. So a lot of great releases there that you can search for through uh, Elephant or Elephant uh, label there that's transferred a bunch of old Quebec films. So anyway, The Mob is a great gateway to a whole different kind of Canadian cinema that a lot of us English-speaking people here in the West probably haven't had much experience with. Hell yeah, I did pick that up. And it, this label's been put on some very cool movies. There's one called Helicopter Canada that's a helicopter tour of Canada <laughs> in the 70s that's a double feature with Buster Keaton rides again. Yeah, which are both great. And the the, the Helicopter Canada one, uh, you uh, you can pick the aspect ratio and you can watch it in like this really weird stretched like aspect ratio that would be like all around you. Like you'd have a big uh, curved screen that you'd watch in the theater. So. Really fun, and it's got like a bunch of weird sort of jokey commentary over top of it too. It's got that quirky Canadian humor, I guess, that we're known for over top Hell of yeah. that. I think it was nominated for an Oscar or something like that. It's fun. Anyway, yeah, Canadian International Pictures, they've been doing great stuff, and I'll buy every single release of theirs just to support more Canadian content being out there. Hell yeah. What else you got? Definitely not Canadian. Alex Cox's Walker yeah. from the Criterion Collection. Unthinkable has happened. The United States has invaded Nicaragua. An American has declared himself president. You all might think that there'll be a day when America will leave Nicaragua alone, but I'm here to tell you that that day will never happen. I swear that we will never abandon the cause of Nicaragua. Ed Harris, Peter Boyle, and Marley Matlin. Walker. I'd never seen this film and uh, it always been on my radar, but once I heard it wasn't a spaghetti western, it kind of fell off my radar. Because Alex Cox, director of Repo Man, Sid and Nancy, is the biggest spaghetti western fan out there. And I saw a trailer for Walker, and I was like, "This, this is better. This is better be a western." And a friend of mine, this was like 20 years ago. It's like uh, it's like a political allegory. Like, all right. So it sounded too heavy. Sounded like I might need to know a little bit about history to immerse myself in it. This movie is 
fucking bonkers, dude. It is a spaghetti western approach to like a political story. So, my friend who told me it wasn't a spaghetti western 20 years ago, you were wrong. This <laughs> is essentially Alex Cox's spaghetti western. It uh, has Ed Harris in the lead as Walker, an American adventurer who sent over to South America to help spread democracy in the American name, and everything turns to blood and shit. Has the craziest ending, has a brilliant Joe Strummer score, and this Criterion Collection uh, version has an audio commentary with Alex Cox and the writer Rudy Wurlitzer, who wrote uh, Paris, Texas. It's got Dispatches from Nicaragua, a full-length documentary on the filming of Walker, and it has newsreels from the actual revolution that this is based on. Man, violent, funny, strange. This is a role I've never seen Ed Harrison. This is a very flawed protagonist. This man has no idea what to do and kind of lives by his own code of trusting God. And it gets him into some very strange situations. Had always flown under my radar, but now it is one of my favorite Alex Cox movies. Alex Cox, highly underrated filmmaker. Do check out Walker. Now available from the Criterion Collection. All right, uh, switching gears myself too. Uh, I pick one, a shot on video film. Scary Tales. Ooh! Hey man, what's your fucking problem? friend of the podcast and in fact he was in person with us oh yes with the Lloyd Kaufman interview but uh, this is one of Cody's favorite films Scary Tales which is described as like a VHS or shot on video creep show so I was in <laughs> once I read that and uh, so charming so low budget and the performers are not uh, trained actors you know they're friends of the the filmmakers and that so there's a real sort of down-to-earth charm to them. But, uh, you know, just the, the, the inventiveness of some of the effects. Like someone's breathing fire, and so they have this the camera at such a way that the person opens their mouth, and then, you know, five feet behind them, there's a little flame that burns from, like, a car engine or something like that that shoots out to show that he's breathing fire. So it's got three little short, you know, short little tales of, uh, you know, comeuppance like your typical anthology films, but shot on video, really, you know, rough around the edges, but so charming. When shot on video, it's at its best. It's taken me a while to get to appreciating shot on video films because, you know, there's there's a very low barrier to entry. Like, you know, you could just have a anyone who had a camcorder could make one of these, right? And so the, the quality definitely suffers and it's not film, so it doesn't have a a great preservation quality to it. But the ones that really work like this one, the people are so interesting and so different than Hollywood, you know, that you just want to watch just to see, you know, like, I think this is in Baltimore that they filmed. Uh, they just have a completely different way of being that's uh, so fun to watch, I guess. Yeah, there's definitely an endearing quality to seeing people who made a movie just because they wanted to and could, you know? It's, like, it's the best of regional and underground films are the ones where you can really see the personality of the filmmakers. And they really do come through in these shot on video films because they were filming these in their own homes with their own friends or, you know, getting into a liquor store that their cousin <laughs> operated. And you can, there's, there's love and care where, you know, there should be skill and experience but it's just that classic uh, battle of head and heart. And these yeah. movies have far more heart than head, and that's not a bad thing at all. <laughs> totally, yeah. So 
Super fun to watch Scary Tales, which comes to us from American Genre Film Archive, AGFA, and uh, through Bleeding Skull as well. So really fun, early 90s shot on video madness. Hell yeah. What do you got for the final one? I got horror movies when we've reached our final destination, Red. I got this feeling. It's a weird feeling. The cabin starts to shake, right? And, and the, the left side blows up and then the whole plane just explodes. The plane's gonna explode! It's not a joke! It's not a joke! We get thrown off the plane all because Brownie has a bad dream? I saw it. The plane! It's gonna blow up! It's gonna blow up! All 287 passengers are feared dead. Because of you, I'm still alive. In death, there are no accidents. Now, can you promise me that no one else is going to die? I'll see you soon. Five of them. You cheated. No, this is the box set of all the Final Destination films on Blu-ray. All five of them from Warner Brothers. I love the Final Destination series. I honestly believe that you could make a Final Destination movie every single year. All you need to do is come... Uh, I think you should make a Saw movie every year, too. It's about the innovation of the traps and finding people to go through said traps. And what I really love about Final Destination is that the, the series is known for kicking it off with the could-be-avoided mass death scenario, right? But they always get, you always get to see the full thing. And so the first 10 minutes of every Final Destination movie is fucking banging. Every single one of them. And the rest of the movie kind of hinges on how they justify getting to the next uh, near-death experience. Uh, or right. finding out the mythology of death. And like the Saw movies, the theories get bigger and more outlandish. Um, but we're just there to strap on in for the rides, the games, the Rube Goldberg traps. Where movies really shine, the creativity of setting up an audience's expectations for one thing and then subverting that expectation with how the death actually pulls it off. Yeah, which one is the one that has the balancing beam one? Is that four or is that five? Balancing beam is part five. Yeah, okay. Part five is an amazing film. Right? That's the iconic misdirection where you think the person's going to die on this balancing beam about 10 other ways and then what happens is the 11th other <laughs> yeah, way. Dude. Yeah, dude. And it's the best because it's if you've ever seen one of these movies with a packed audience, you know the true cinematic experience of anticipation. The audience is being teased the whole time. And people are like, oh, they think they know how it's going to play out. You'll hear whispers. And then if it doesn't play out the way they think it does, it's even more fun, man. It's yeah. fun not being able to predict how these things play out. It's what I loved about the Saw movies that weren't the last two. It's what I love about every single one of the Final Destination movies. I bet in our lifetime there's a, re a relaunch of this franchise in some form or another. And I, for one, will be there opening night because I love the Final Destination series. I'll give you all a quick ranking. Five, two, one, three, four. You got a ranking of the Final Destination movies, Rip? Yeah, yeah, I'd probably say five as well. The, they end on a great note, especially because it links back to the rest of the, the first film as well. Oh, and the 3D was so good at five yeah, in theaters. Yeah. It was, uh, it, I think it was James Cameron's assistant director that directed the oh, fifth, okay. final destination. Yeah. I'd probably go five, one, two, four, three. 
Nice. Is me. So we, we, we're both in agreement. We're on close five. enough. Yeah, five and one and two. Those are the top tier. And then, yeah. Yeah, right. five, one and two. And then the other two, they're not great, but they're still a damn good time. Oh, yeah. There's always there's a couple of notable deaths, deaths in all of them. But yeah, like you mentioned, though, because I mean, the Saw movies, like, by the end, they really had to sort of, like, stretch it. Like, okay, like, now, I mean, Jigsaw has been dead for, like, four movies here. How do we keep <laughs> motivating why he still has all these traps that he miraculously built in the span of like a, a week when he found out he had yeah, cancer yeah. to the end. Whereas Final Destination is one that is evergreen, right? It's just like, it's death, death coming against you. Yeah, so it, it, there's no, it's not outlandish at all. <laughs> like It's the same, like death is always there. So you could, you literally could make it every single time. There should be nobody questioning why. Oh, hell yeah. There could be one, one set in the winter. There could be one set in Halloween. You could take it to a different country. It's an evergreen concept. I'm sad that they stopped <laughs> making Final Destination movies. I hope they come back. I really do. And uh, as is tradition with almost every horror franchise that has gone more, longer than, say, a fourth film, is it has the fourth film curse of saying, it's the last one. So the fourth film is called The Final Destination, but yet it wasn't. There was still another final one after. Which, which, which I like to call Final Destination because <laughs> it, was, it just said Final Destination, but the F was a, was a five. <laughs> <laughs> so the, part, the posters were all Final Destination. Well, yeah, we're like, you know, Scream 4 was Scream. <laughs> Everyone was calling it Five Cream for the fifth Scream, but they just called it Scream, which every every horror movie franchise, I think we've talked about on the podcast, always has to have the weirdest naming system. It can't just be like one, yeah. two, three, four, five. Everyone's... But the- seriously, how are we getting Scream movies again, but not Final Destination? Scream? There were so many ripoffs of that concept that I'm surprised not everybody's just super bored of that, of, yeah. of, of the box that well, you're Well, and you got to pay way more for the actors, right? Because there's so much continuity in the Scream movies. But Final Destination, it can be in any place, right? Yeah. Like, you could just have a different group of people. And Sawa's acting again. Bring him back. He would be killer in another oh, one. Oh, yeah. That would be awesome. Is he back? Does he have a cameo in Five? No. Yes, oh, but it, I don't want to ruin yeah, okay, it. Okay, never mind. We're not ruining part. He's not in part five. If you <laughs> no, haven't seen, no, it. he's not. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> uh, What's last your last pick, Spoiler McGee? <laughs> Spoiler McGee. Uh, I've got one you could spoil, but I don't think anyone's even seen it anyway. It's called <laughs> Flesh Eater: Revenge of the Living Dead. Open the door. Whoa! Come on, man. Those things are right behind us. It's too late. Go find someplace else to hide. Oh, you bastard. What are we looking for? Yeah, Sarah. What are these things? They're dead things. This one's a regional one from Vinegar Syndrome. My other two picks were partner labels with Vinegar Syndrome, so I figured I'd go right to the heart of who's been releasing all these great movies that I've been watching, or great with quotation marks sometimes. But I love uh, Flesh Eater, and this was a big surprise for me because... um, 
Bill Hinsman, the director, was probably most famous as the main cemetery zombie at the start of the George A. Romero's original Night of the Living Dead. So you think of him as an actor, but in fact, he was a cinematographer. I believe he was a cinematographer for a couple of Romero's films like The Crazies and uh, maybe like There's Always Vanilla or something like that. But then little did I know that he had also directed a couple movies himself as well. And, uh, and he had come back too for maybe a very maligned 30th anniversary update of Night of the Living Dead, which is basically Night of the Living Dead, but with newly shot scenes from 1998 eight or something like that, that they reincorporated into the film uh, that maybe didn't work out so well. But I always found it an interesting curio. So when I saw that Vinegar Syndrome was announcing this little regional Pittsburgh shot on 16 millimeter film that, you know, has hardly had any sort of releases and they're doing a 4K of it, I just, was a, it was a blind buy for me. And I was actually quite impressed by, you know, the filmmaking there. There's some interesting shots, some choices. Uh, again, it's got that regional charm that I was talking about for, with Scary Tales, you know, that they're not quite uh, Hollywood actors, but it's got a really great pace to it, high body count, but just kind of like a fun, more modern take on Night of the Living Dead. And didn't you tell me there's a topless zombie in this movie? Yes, for quite a bit of it, yeah. Like half the movie? There's, there's a lot of topless everything in it, yeah. But uh, yeah, there's a zombie. They, they're doing a dig somewhere and they accidentally unearth this zombie in an amulet or something like that. So it's got a little bit of a supernatural. I guess all zombies are kind of supernatural, but even more of a supernatural slant. But quite fun. And uh, Bill Hensman only did two, two films. But uh, yeah, anyway, this one was a revelation for me. A lot of fun for, you know, if you like zombie films or certainly like, you know, it feels like a successor to Night of the Living Dead where if you're just staying with the Night of the Living Dead template. Of course, George Romero grew that with different ideas, you know, on the different eras that he made his films. But this feels like, okay, we're doing Night of the Living Dead, but we're just doing it in 1988 in a field, okay? Hell yeah. <laughs> it's super fun, so we'd recommend. Man, I remember that anniversary edition of Night of the Living Dead, the early Anchor Bay DVD. I think I spent over $50 yeah, on that, yeah. when that was a lot of money to me. And uh, the new footage, I hated. It looked like it was had this digital sheen to it that where it didn't cut well with the old footage at all. No. All of the actors were visibly aged. <laughs> uh, the writing was way worse. Like it just, I, I don't know what John Russo was thinking. I, I mean, it has a cool synth score because I mean the original film never had a score and they just used stock music for it. So it's kind of like those early silent films where like the score isn't really like a part of the film. They just, they added it on. So this felt like the score was actually kind of composed for the film, but you know, and I like synth synthesized music. So I vibed on that and you could watch that version of it, just the original cut yeah, with yeah. that new music, which I, I still have that DVD around because I do like that version. But yeah, the new, the new stuff wasn't the best. I wonder if that cut will ever be preserved. Because <laughs> it's definitely not on the criterion. Someone's got to dig it up. Yeah, Vinegar Syndrome ever gets the rights to No Living Dead, which I mean, it is public domain, uh, so they certainly could if they wanted to. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe a flesh eater sells uh, sells in huge numbers here. Hell yeah, <laughs> we might get another No Living Dead. Well, it's been great to be back in the studio. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, as far as what Cuff has in the works, we're busy planning our 12-hour Halloween marathon, so we'll have seven horror movies for y'all to watch from 7 p.m. until 7 a.m. sometime in October. We're also programming Cuff Docs, taking submissions now, so any documentarians who are listening, please send us your movies. And for everybody else, just give us a follow on Facebook or Instagram and to see what uh, Cuff has in the future. And yeah, thanks for this red. Let's do it again soon, yeah? 
Sounds good. Hell yeah. Enjoy the rest of your summer, everybody. <laughs>